You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome to Like Flint Radio. This is your host GK. You can find us on the web at likeflintradio.com. If you'd like to email us, it's mail at likeflintradio.com. This is part two of Cliff Garner's presentation of Vlad the Impaler. If you haven't yet heard part one, you can go to our website and find it there under show 15. Now in this episode, and at least in the first 10 minutes, you will hear some items that we covered in part one because we recorded a number of sessions and really the material here that we covered before fleshes out more thoroughly the story of the Siege of Belgrade in 1456 and the appearance of the sign of the dragon, Halley's Comet, also in 1456. Following this, it's all new material, a fair bit of it covering the atrocities, including the empowerments by Vlad Dracula, who, as you'll hear, was a legend in his own time, um, let alone the legend and myth that has surrounded him uh, in present day. Um, uh, Cliff outlines the fact that he was a legend uh, in his time. Um, and finally, at the back end of this show, we briefly discuss Bram Stoker's book, Dracula. Uh, we discuss a couple of movies about Dracula, just briefly. And um, we also touch very, very lightly on their cult. So anyway, strap yourself in for part two of Vlad the Impaler with Cliff Garner. connection and I checked and I still have one. Mm. <laughs> well, I was just getting ready to talk about uh, the reports that Dracula was getting from uh, some captured sailors that were kind of passing through his territory. Yeah, yeah. They had stories about the fall of, uh, of Constantinople and that one of the things that they witnessed was, uh, was that, that the uh, Turks uh, would impale uh, captured sailors outside the outside the city gates uh-huh. just to show, hey, these guys tried to get away. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't make it. <laughs> so so that, that's the first time that uh, 
the book mentions the impalements, and uh, and uh, it's like, wow, that's pretty significant. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, it's like he's he's like probably put in the back of his mind, okay, well, I've seen him do this, I've seen him do that, and they use this to terrify the people and cow them into doing what they want them to do. But, you know, impalement, well, you know, that's pretty mean. <laughs> and uh, he, he probably takes note of that. So, at any rate, uh, Hunyadi and Dracula are, are forming a, really a, a defensive wall, uh, mm-hmm. preparing for the next battle, okay, because they know that Fadi Mehmet uh, the second is coming. And Dracula has no doubt in his mind of what he's going to do, because he's dealt with the man, he's seen the man, he's, he's, he's eaten with him, he's been around him for a long time, and probably right. knows that he was... He, he was uh, uh, a little bit too close to his brother. Okay, that's a that's a kind of uh, important point that he knows this guy before he comes in, and and everybody else is kind of like, okay, what are we going to deal with? Mm-hmm. And he's like, you don't know the nature of this man. You've never seen anybody like him because yeah. he's a yeah. psychopath, and he is. He's a psychopath. And he's a genius, and he's capable of being very kind. But he's also very cruel, mm-hmm. and he has a, he has certain refinements to that cruelty that uh, that are very significant. And one of the things that uh, I understand that he enjoyed doing was uh, he would take take somebody that he didn't like, and he would put them into an oven and make people be quiet. And he listened for the pop oh. when their head would blow up. Oh, so that that's uh, like well, you know. That's a little bit elaborate there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think that speaks volumes of the kind of thinking going on here. Uh, and and uh, Mehmet mm. uh, is a very yeah. savage yeah. Uh, man in opposition. Yeah. Uh, he he is violent and and uh, just goes insane. So they know he's coming, and so they're preparing. And what they do is they shore up the defenses, uh, and, and Hunyadi is in possession of uh, Belgrade, which is a very important uh, fortress, and, and that's going to be the focus of their attack. He, he's sure of it. Uh, meanwhile, Dracula is, is protecting the flank from his, his uh, kinsman uh, rival, Vladislav II, who is a full-fledged uh, Turkish ally. And Hunyadi sends one of his sons east to, to attack into Croatia. So what they're doing is that they're moving the defenses into place, and they're going to wait for him to come and hang him up on it. What Don, Don Hunyadi is going to do is that he and St. John of Capistrano, and, uh, well, well St. John of Capistrano was, uh, was a monk, and, and he was a warrior before that, and... Uh, He's a Minorite Franciscan, and he is talking about a crusade. And he gets this ragtag little army put together, (laughs) and they're going to fight against Turks. (laughs) About 8,000 of them. And they're a bunch of peasants with just whatever the, you know, implements they can conjure up. (laughs) So he he whips us this army of about 8,000, and he's going to go with uh, John Hunyadi, who's one of the foremost soldiers of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and Hunyadi doesn't believe him, but, uh, yeah. you know, there's something to be said for people who believe in something. <laughs> and what they were, do- what they were <laughs> doing is that they were going to break the, they were going to break the uh, encirclement of 
of Belgrade at the key point in time. See, they knew it was coming. They were going to besiege it. And when they came, they were going to come in and relieve the city. Right, yeah. Okay, and that, that, was, that was the key to what they were going to do. So that's exactly what happened. Uh, the, the Turks came and they, they really hammered down on Belgrade. And sure, St. John of, of uh, Capistrano and his peasants were able to do miracles. They called it a miracle, too. And they, they were successful. They broke through the line, and they were able to enter the city and hold on to the last bastion of the city and wear the Turks down until they gave up. Amazing. Amazing. With a ragtag bunch, as, as you were saying. With a ragtag bunch. 8,000 8, peasants armed with pitchforks uh, yep, yep. and, and weapons. Yep. Yeah, they did it, uh, and uh, that is remarkable. And uh, he was sainted because of that. He, he they, they uh, beatified him, uh, and it was called a miracle. Everyone called it that at the time. Uh, Saint John Capistrano would, would die very shortly after, and so would John Hunyadi. Uh, they both died of the plague. Uh, Hunyadi died uh, August eleventh. Was just a matter of days after after the battle. And then uh, John Capistrano would die after the plague on uh, October 23rd, and he would be immediately beatified. So he was made a saint for the miracle that he performed there. And uh, Hunyadi's son, Laszlo, would take over uh, the uh, uh, command at Belgrade and, uh, and also in uh, the uh, general defense of uh, Transylvania. And uh, meanwhile, while all that was going on, Vlad attacked uh, Wallachia, Wallachia and uh, defeated uh, Vladislav and uh, killed him personally. And he would avenge his father and brother. And something was seen in the sky in June 1456. Any guess? Let me think. A cross? No. Oh. Ooh. No, I don't know then. Uh, they actually called it a dragon. Oh, you're kidding me. No, uh, oh. but but it was actually Halley's Comet. Ah, oh, okay. Uh-huh. And uh, that that was uh, just before Dracula attacked uh, attacked his uh, his rival and, and killed him in battle. Well, actually killed him after battle, and uh, hmm. uh, we're not sure how he died, uh, but it, I'm, I think we can be reasonably sure it was uh, not very kind. And uh, So the sign of a dragon appeared in the sky. Yeah, mm. isn't that strange? Mm. Mighty strange. Mm-hmm. So, so Dracula came to power finally, and uh, he was approached immediately by the Turks. Uh, they demanded a tribute. Uh, they wanted 2,000 uh, ducats a year. They didn't mess and, around. <laughs> yeah. They're coming to collect. Yeah, they, they, as soon as he comes in, they're, they're like, well, guess what? Uh, here's the deal. <laughs> and uh, they also demanded right of passage through uh, Wallachia. And, uh, and Dracula agreed, but he did not pay uh, any official... Um, he did not go in person, okay, which, uh, which is uh, something that they insisted on. He refused to do it. So he, he began uh, building uh, all these uh, 
different uh, cities up and all the, the different defenses. He was getting ready for war again. Uh, and one of the places that he was pretty partial to was Bucharest. Uh, and he, he was, uh, he, he actually had a palace there. He was trying to centralize and uh, he was also trying to, uh, to really um, eliminate the Dinesh and their backers. So that, uh, that would account for some of the cruel deeds that he would do. Uh, and so there was a general purge uh, in the spring of 1457 uh, during Easter celebration. This is really interesting. Uh, Dracula had uh, talked to the boyars of uh, Turgoviste and uh, that had murdered his father and all that. And he uh, he grabbed them during Easter while they were wearing their Easter best, right, and right. put and put them to work building a wall for him at a castle in their clothes. Um, well, needless to say, didn't didn't last very well. But it, men, women, and children, and he put them to work. He he, he actually probably impaled some right away. Uh, according to another source, uh, he impaled the old ones right away. Uh, a historian called Calcondelis, uh, he's a Greek, uh, said that he impaled the old old people in their their. Uh, their wives, and then uh, put the young to work and worked some of them to death. And this would be uh, one of the first uh, examples of uh, Dracula's cruelty, and it would uh, be the start of this reputation. This was to build uh, his fortification of the Turgoviste, his capital. And he built a lot of fortresses. I, he was really well known for it. Uh, he used the uh, Serbian and uh, Byzantine styles, not not the German, which German was considered kind of state of the art. Um, one of the things about the uh, the uh, Serbian and uh, uh, Byzantine style fortifications was that uh, most of his fortresses were small, but they were up in mountains, and and they were built to last through cannons, uh, and and not only that. Uh, he, he he would put him in places that were, were pretty easy for him to defend, and it made it hard for the uh, enemy to come in uh, uh, mobily. You know, they they would uh, they would get mired down in the mud, or or they'd be have to go up all these winding roads to get to the top there, and they wouldn't have a, enough room to maneuver, and they'd have a hard time using their cannons because cannons were becoming a very powerful uh, little toy, and. Uh, and he he was uh, very aware of that, partly because of his brother uh, being a pioneer in the use of uh, cannon fire. So that that was the key there that uh, that he made his uh, his fortresses uh, rather rather thick and hard to break in through. There's a, an example here, and, and some really good examples of uh, some of his uh, cruelty and. Uh, and his uh, other features of, of his character. Uh, but one of the things that really irritated him was people who weren't productive. And he went after uh, the beggars of uh, Turgoviste in a big way. 
And uh, th this is just uh, this remarkable and, and, and creepy uh, story here. And it says uh, here, the, the image of Dracula as a friend of the poor has had to overcome examples of either sterner retributions in the oral traditions of the Romanian people. Perhaps the most tragic incident involving mass punishment of the have-nots, one that is referred to in all the narratives, German, Russian, and Romanian, was Dracula's ridding the country of the beggars, the sick, and the poor. Uh, the Romanian version of that particular incident is as follows. Uh, having asked the old, the ill, the lame, the poor, the blind, and the vagabonds to a large dining hall in Turgoviste, uh, Dracula ordered that a feast be prepared for them. On the appointed day, Tirgoviste groaned under the weight of a large number of beggars who had come. The prince's servants seemed, uh, passed out a batch of clothes to each one. Then they led the beggars to a large manson, mansion where the tables had been set. The beggars marveled at the prince's generosity, and they spoke among themselves. Truly, it is the prince's kind of grace. Then they started eating, and what do you think they saw before them? A meal such as one would find in the prince's own table, wines and all the best things to eat which weigh you down. The beggars had a feast that became legendary. They ate and drank greedily. Most of them became dead drunk. As they became unable to communicate with one another and became incoherent, they were suddenly faced with fire and smoke on all sides. The prince had ordered his servants to set the house on fire. They rushed to the doors to get out, but the doors were locked. The fire progressed. The flames rose high like inflamed dragon. Shouts, shrieks, and moans rose above, from the lips of all the poor and clothes there. But why should a fire be moved by the entreaties of men? They fell upon each other. They embraced each other. They sought help. But there was no human ear left to listen to them. They began to twist in the torments of the fire that was destroying them. The fire stifled some. The embers reduced others to ashes. The flames grilled most of them. When the fire finally abated, there was no trace of any living soul. The main justification for this crime was that it was an attempt to rid the country of useless vagabonds. Dracula's own words have survived in the collective memory of the Romanian people. These men live off the sweat of others, so they are useless to humanity. Draco. It is a form of thievery. Draco. They are much worse than robbers. May such men be eradicated from my land. In Dracula's defense, one might allege that these vagabonds and firm and destitute people who roam the countryside, occasionally invading cities and preying upon the rich instead of working, constituted a social plague. These people were a threat to prosperity of the land and gave his country a poor reputation. One specialist in the history of Romanian medicine has suggested that Dracula, through this action, was attempting to get rid of the country of the plague, the constant scourge on the lower Danube. In addition, he may have been trying to liquidate the problem of the gypsies, a vagabond people notorious for their thievery and wrongdoing. When on one occasion a condemned gypsy leader protested to the prince that death by impalement or fire was contrary to their law, Dracula ordered him to be boiled alive in a huge cauldron, and then, as an added refinement, compelled the members of his tribe to eat the flesh of the culprit, an act of forced cannibalism. So, so you can see there, there's a... Uh, a really, really hard part of him.
Yes. Yeah, indeed. It, there's no getting around that. Uh, right, the yeah. now the, the the source of these stories uh, came from different places. Okay, and uh, and when we talk about the legend of Dracula, that legend was in place even as he was being considered a hero or a, a villain uh, by depending on which side you were on. Uh, even even as he was doing his deeds, he was a legend in his own time. And the thing with the Germans, uh, they were the ones that brought it to English first. Uh, they, they, those, of course, English and German being very similar languages. Um, but but the Germans uh, had had some good reasons not to like him very much. And uh, what it was was that uh, they they had uh, there were seven cities. Uh, I, I thought it was seven sisters. It's actually Siebenbürgen, <laughs> literally seven <Yeah>. cities <laughs> really uh, of Transylvania, and they're all yeah. Saxon cities. And so they're uh, very and also, German. I've been also very yeah, they're more German than they are uh, Romanian. Uh, also, um, highly productive modern workshops they would produce finished goods uh, clocks uh, clocks that from there were famous uh, one of the most important one was cannons and firearms but they were also you know producing other other gadgetry and other things of that nature uh, and the relationship between the Germans and the uh, uh, the other uh, ethnicities of uh, Wallachia and Transylvania was that uh, basically the Germans were selling uh, finished goods. So those finished goods, uh, by that and by their very nature, were more expensive items, uh, and uh, the other areas were supplying them with the raw goods that, that it took to build those things. Now. The there was a very ambiguous relationship between the Germans and the other peoples in the Balkans as well, because the Germans often had their own uh, they had their own agenda, and uh, making money was the main part of it, and uh, didn't seem to be a whole lot of uh, morality uh, went into some of their decisions. Um, the Germans were the, uh, this book describes them as the Krupps of the 15th century. You know the Krupps. Uh, yes, that's right, yes. Yeah, House of Krupp, right? Yeah. The great armors. Yes. Well, that's Right that's into World exactly War II, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And when everything went south uh, with uh, the Second Battle of Kosovo, uh, Polje, and, uh, and some of the other things that went on, the the Turks hired the cannoneers from the German cities there, and they came south into the Turkish territory and set up their foundries down there, and they were building the cannons that killed the Serbs and Slovenes and the uh, Croatians and the other people, uh, Wallachians, Hungarians, all of them. And they were they were very critical in causing the decline of uh, 
Balkan Christendom to where the Turks were now knocking at the gate of Vienna twice. So that was not a, a, one of their better virtues. Was that there was no loyalty for them whatsoever. And that, uh, that doesn't reflect very well upon them. And so because they were an unruly uh, uh, group, and they, like I said, they would side with the Habsburgs, and the Habsburgs, the Habsburgs were more willing to, uh, to try to destroy all the heretics in, the, in Europe, including the Lutherans, <laughs> including the British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, uh, the so the Habsburgs uh, and their their emphasis was in quite a different direction. So that tended to uh, put the Germans uh, in that area into thinking otherwise. They had their own priorities. They were going to make the money off the Turks, and, and it really comes from the Germans to start with. Uh, mm-hmm. They recorded it uh, mostly because uh, it started with them. Because of the, the economics of the area and the fact that the Germans were working with uh, refined goods, you know, finished goods, they, they tended to make a lot of money. And, uh, and, and they, they would be paid in kind, you know, with uh, raw, raw, raw equipment, raw, raw goods and stuff like that and food, you know. But uh, the, the balance had to be paid in cash. And uh, generally, they wanted it paid in uh, the Florentine or uh, Venetian ducats. Uh, that's really the, the coin of the realm. Right. So that's, that's how things would work. Now, when he came to power, he wanted to have a good relationship with the Germans. And, and for obvious reasons. I mean, uh, for one thing, they built the cannons. You know, you want them working for you, not the other guy. Exactly. Yeah, so so he was really trying to get them to 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 come around to his way of thinking. And and uh, but the thing is is that they they were always going to be loyal to the Habsburgs and not to him. And and he had a problem with that. Uh, a guy like Dracula, you know, loyalty you know he, he he understands the word really well, and he he and he can actually be quite noble in his own way, but but at the same time, when he is disappointed in something like that, and he thinks that, that he's he's been wrong, I mean we're talking about a guy that's going to put you up on a stake, you know? right? So that's uh, that's pretty serious business. Uh, so. Uh, what what had happened is, sure. is that he gave them these great concessions. Okay. So the Germans just followed the Habsburgs and didn't didn't pay attention to the Hunyadis. Well, well, Hunyadi uh, had some really big problems with uh, Ladislaus. Ladislaus was uh, not a very uh, not a very good ruler. Uh, he was uh, he was more interested in uh, the court than he was in ruling and uh, and in defending his realm, uh, which was going to soon be uh, swallowed by the Turks. And uh, he had a supporter. His name was uh, Count Chili, C-I-L-L-I. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and this was a, a German family that had moved from uh, Italy. Uh, there, there were a couple of them of this guy. 
but they they were very uh, very powerful family at the time, and they were they had married into with the uh, the Habsburgs and the Luxembourgs and all of them, and uh, Laszlo Cunati um, murdered uh, Count Chile because of some things that he had done to him in the past. So and that happened when uh, when the, when Chile and uh, and Ladislaus V uh, came to visit uh, Belgrade, uh, where uh, Laszlo Hunyadi was, uh, he was, you know, holding that in power. And uh, so Ladislaus uh, would arrest Hunyadi not too long afterwards, and he sentenced him to death, and he also imprisoned his brother, Matthias Corvinus. And Matthias Corvinus is, is, is a really... Uh, an important character uh, uh, that that will come out increasingly, but at this time he's he's uh, a little bit too young to be much of anything, even though he's being thrown in prison. So so the the Hunyadis, uh, uh, you know, like I say, Laszlo is now dead. John is already dead, and uh, Matthias uh, Corvinus is in prison. Uh, the cause is taken up by Ersabeth uh, Zilagi, who is uh, uh, John Hunyadi's widow. And uh, her brother, Mihaili, uh, is also uh, helping him. And they're trying to get uh, uh, Corvinus out of prison and put him on the throne of uh, Hungary. So, so that uh, situation being what it is, uh, Vlad is backing... Uh, backing the Corvinus uh, cause still, and he's he's trying to get uh, uh, Corvinus put onto the uh, throne. Well, the Germans uh, don't don't go for that at all, and uh, and that that's gonna, that's causing some problems for him. Uh, so they were you know they they were the rebellions and uh, and the Zalagis are you know just getting in all kinds of trouble with the uh, Germans there. So the Germans revolted, uh, and, and they, they tried to overthrow Zalagdi because he's the ruler of Transylvania, and they, that's where their seven cities are. And then uh, Zalagdi asked uh, Dracula to come and help, and, of course, he comes in, and he, and he uh, attacks uh, the city of, uh, I think it's CBU, and uh, they burn the city of the ground. Uh, no, it's not CBU. It's one of the others. One of the other seven cities. At any rate, they burned. They burned it down, and uh, they burned the homes of the rebels. And uh, the rebels went off to CBU and Brashov. So uh, now, now Dracula has uh, these these enemies in the, of the Germans uh, that are going to be implacable. Now Zalaji gives him a castle in the Borgo Pass. Hey. <laughs> That is Castle Dracula. Yeah, <laughs> the real Castle Dracula. So, so that that's where that comes from. It's uh, near a medieval city of Rodna, and uh, there's I, I think it's only small villages there now, but it's up in the mountain areas, and it's Borgo Passes, one of the main passes through the uh, Carpathians. So, so at any rate, the Germans and the Zeklis were infuriated at him, and. Uh, and uh, Vlad uh, uh, sent uh, 
He sent an ambassador to uh, Constantinople as an as a vassal of the Sultan, and 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 he he kind of had to do that in order to maintain his position. Uh, he was he was riding the same dragon that his dad was, and uh, so that uh, made it necessary for him to uh, to play that double game between the Holy Roman Emperor and the uh, and the uh, uh, the Turks. So. But that 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 infuriated the Germans exactly as at him, and uh, and they were not going to forgive him. Uh, so the Germans, what they did is they backed uh, the brother of Ladislaw II, one of the Danish. <laughs> this is Dun Dun the Third, <laughs> and the leading Danish who uh, took up residence in uh, Brasov. Uh, and you got CBU, they chose Vlad's half-brother, Vlad the Monk, <laughs> and he lived in Amlash, which is a major uh, area there that was under his control. But he really didn't, couldn't enforce everything there either. Uh, and then uh, a third candidate was uh, another uh, Danesh, uh, Basarab Lyota, and he's the son of Dan II. And he would become prince after Dracula was assassinated in uh, 1476. And Vlad the Monk would actually become uh, also become prince for a, a very short time. Then and, and uh, Dracula then uh, canceled his concessions for the Germans and uh, gave them to the Wallachians. And this would really make the Germans mad because basically what he did is he made them bring their goods out and and set them up for sale. And they had to take whatever price was offered them. That uh, you can imagine, that's not going to go over very well. And they they were they were just enraged. So the Germans, uh, they, well, they were open rebellion basically, and uh, Vlad started impaling uh, them. Uh, there was uh, uh, terror raids in 1458 and 1460 that were even more savage uh, than the ones before. Uh, the town of Talmash, he burned the city and then had the people hacked to pieces like cabbage. That's a quote. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so is this, where, this is where his reputation as the impaler comes from. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. There, there's, there's so many of these uh, examples of this that uh, it's just dude, from one case to the next. Uh, there's a, a Mina singer, you know, German troubadour, uh, Michael Beheim, uh, that that actually uh, recorded a lot of this uh, for post posterity. Uh, like, uh, oh goodness, there's 600 people in one's town that just chopped them up like like they're vegetables. And then uh, when Posthumus, Ladislaus Posthumus died, uh, it was possibly by poison. The uh, Zalagis got their uh, got their wish. Mount Matthias uh, Corvinus was released from prison. He was made king. Can you imagine that? He, he's gone from prison to king. This, yeah. This yeah. Yeah. And that was January 24th, 1458. But he didn't get a crown yet. Uh, in fact, it would be some time before he would receive it. And that, uh, that would be a, a thing that would cause a lot of uh, intrigue that was going on in the area. And uh, so Corvinus uh, sent uh, Benedict uh, de Boethus, Benedict de Boethor, and he was trying to uh, work things out between Corvinus 
the Germans and uh, and uh, Dracula, and he was a very uh, good uh, negotiator. Benedict was. So that when he arrived at Turgoviste, the prince ordered him to sit with Dracula at his table in the castle, which was, not unexpectedly, surrounded by dead and dying victims impaled on stakes. Mm-hmm. In front of the main table, Dracula had put a large stake gilded in gold. Dracula asked the ambassador, Tell me, why did I place this stake here? The ambassador was frightened, but he stumbled up his courage and replied, Lord, it would appear that some great man committed some crime at your expense and that you wish to reserve for him a more honorable death than that meted out to your humbler man. Dracula answered, You spoke well, for you are the representative of the great King Matthias, and I have reserved this stake for you. The ambassador <laughs> contended, Lord, if I have committed some crime which deserves the death penalty, do what you think is just, for you are not an impartial judge, and it would not be your... You responsible for my death, but I alone. Dracula burst out laughing and said, Had you not answered me properly, you would be on that stake now. Instead, Dracula honored the man and gave him presents. The prince closed the audience with the words, You are fully worthy of being an ambassador of a great ruler, since you have mastered the art of speaking to another great sovereign. But do not send any ambassadors to me who have not been properly educated in the art of diplomacy. Parallel negotiations with the representatives of Brashov continued for some time in the fall of 1458, though in the end, Dracula placed under house arrest the 500 Germans represent, German representatives sent to Turgoviste. On November 23rd, 1458, an accord was reached with Brashov at Sigishwara, where Zalaji uh, resided. The Brashovians uh, agreed to surrender Dunn III, and his boyar supporters were also to be extradited. The city would pay Zalaji 10,000 florins for war damage. In exchange, Dracula would restore the commercial privileges of both towns. Dracula seemed to accept these terms, for on December 1st, 1458, he wrote to the mayor of Brashov, I know that you will keep the word ordered in, by my brother and Lord Mihaly uh, Zalaji. Your men can travel in our land freely to buy and sell without worry and without prejudice as if they were in their own country. Uh, mutual suspicions and bad faith on both sides contributed to make the agreement signed at Sigiswara almost a dead letter from the start. On the one hand, the Germans never had never seriously intended to surrender Dracula the refugee candidates to the Wallachian throne, who included Dunn III. On the other hand, the new tensions arose between nephew Matthias and his uncle Mikhaili Salaji. He didn't like as the ambitious boy king who had lingered in jail for so many years was patient to to be his own master. Such tensions were bound to have their effect on Dracula, who sided with Salaji, the man with whom he had so often collaborated. Matthias, on the other hand, preferred to stake his future on the support of the German Saxon townships and brought, brought no pressure upon them to comply with the terms of the earlier agreement. In the winter of 1459, Dracula organized one of his most devastating raids on Transylvania soil with the clear intention of trying to seize Dunn III and his supporters. 
Advancing along the valley of the Prahova River, he delivered the first blows of the city of Brasov, where he burned villages, forts, and towns, and burned the crops to deprive the population of food, and killed men, women, and children as he progressed. He focused his attention on the exposed Brasovian uh, uh, suburbs, especially the Spengi and Pruned area, which were located outside the walls of the fortress. This is the remaining section of town where Dun the Three and his dissident boyars resided. In the cover of darkness, Dracula's men burst across the lightly fortified wooden palisade surrounding the section. They then proceeded to burn the whole suburb, including the old chapel of St. Jacob, built in 1342, located at the foot of Tumpo Hill. It was never restored. He took as many captives as he could and peddled them lengthwise and crosswise, according to Beheim's narrative. Their bodies were strung along Tumpa Hill above the chapel. Uh, Dracula, meanwhile, was seated at a table having his meal. He seemed to enjoy the gruesome scenario of his butchers cutting off limbs of many of his victims. Right. So that's that um, famous scene that you, you see in some artwork where he's dining amongst the uh, the dead and dying of his enemies, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That that is that is a, the very picture of it. Yes. Sorry. To uh, oh no problem. Uh, and yeah, he seemed to enjoy the gruesome scenario of his butchers cutting off the limbs of many of his victims. Uh, Beheim tells us the additional detail that the prince dipped his bread in the blood of his victims. Well, <laughs> there you go. Since <laughs> watching human blood flow gave him courage. The stage was thus set for later Dracula's later reputation as a blood drinker or vampire in his subsequent fictional reincarnation as Count Dracula. As we shall see, the episode of Tumpa Hill did more to damage Dracula's reputation than any act, any other act of his whole career. On this occasion, Dracula also displayed the perverted black humor that is attributed to him in Russian narratives. A boy attending the Brashov festivity, apparently unable to endure any longer the smell of coagulating blood, had the misfortune to hold up his nose and express a gesture of revulsion. Dracula immediately ordered an unusually long steak prepared for his would-be victim and presented it to him with a cynical remark. You live up there yonder where the stench cannot reach you. The boyer was immediately impaled. (laughs) Oh, my. Oh, yeah, he didn't mess around. He just let him have it. So you have a lot of these kind of things, and and these these kinds of stories are not only common. They're they're, they're kind of... uh, they're almost like candy, you know. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because you you read one, you read them all, basically. Yeah. There's quite a few of them, and, uh, and some of them are repeated uh, more than once. Mm-hmm. Uh, my personal favorite is the one where he told the, uh, the Phoenicians who wore skull caps. Uh, they they their diplomats came to to uh, him. And, uh, you know, they wanted this, that, and the other. And, and he asked why they didn't remove their caps uh, in his presence. And they said because they're, uh, because it, 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 it uh, maintains their honor to not remove their hat to anybody. Mm. You know, the Venice of the Republic. And uh, so consequently, they didn't recognize kings. Yeah. And uh, so he's like, well, uh, let's make sure that they're, uh, we, can, we can make sure that you up, up t- uphold your tradition a lot better. They had all their skull caps nailed to their heads. 
Uh, he did the same thing to the Turks, who would not remove their turbans. And that that was uh, really something that triggered off the war. <laughs> so, so he knew how to party when visitors came, huh? Oh, yeah. And uh, the last time, he, he, was, uh, he was fighting a guerrilla war against the Turks. And he was killed, and they 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 buried him. His, his daughter was in Italy, and this is where where it kind of gets kind of kind of funky because we don't know for sure if if she got her hands on him or not. So the the body that they found in Romania, it was in a the, there was actually a body buried in Romania that was supposedly him. The Turks cut the head off of that corpse, and they took it um, down to okay. Constantinople, and they put it, the head on the stake. Mm-hmm. But there, there's a new case in which they, they're wondering if uh, that is exactly what happened. Right. There, there, there's some debate as to whether the Turks actually got their hands on, on Vlad's uh, head or not. They're arguing about it now. But the, there's a, the archaeologists in uh, Italy that are claiming that they actually are showing that the Turks didn't get the right body. That uh, that would be really pretty remarkable, um, and uh, really kind of funny actually uh, that that uh, he he avoided them in death. Uh, let's see. Yeah, he was imprisoned in Hungary. Uh, they let him out. He uh, reconquered Wallachia. He had his third reign, and then he died. Okay, so let's see what happened there. Oh, that's interesting. I, I forgot about that. Yeah, he uh, he was working with Stefan Bathory. Mm-hmm. You know him? No, no. Go on. Uh, no, it was, Madame Bathory uh, was a woman that uh, was... Uh, Sacrificing uh, young girls and using their blood to keep her skin nice. That's right. Yes, I remember. That's kind right. Of a yeah. fountain of youth. That's right. Yeah. So, what was the connection with yeah, Vlad? He was working with Stefan Bathory. Uh, Stefan Bathory was working with Vlad, and she came later. Mister uh, Vlad the Impaler was actually working with the. Uh, with the Bathory, uh, the Bathory family getting uh, reestablished before he died. Right. And both well, the Bathories were uh, were an important family in uh, in uh, Hungary, and they're Hungarian. Okay. And so when he first uh, fails at, after railing for six years, I think it was six years. Um, and, and, and he, uh, he, he, he goes to war with, uh, Tur- the Turks and, uh, it's really kind of an interesting little, little part there. He knows that the Turks are going to bring this huge, huge army with them. And they do. It's a huge, huge army that comes and he's the only person standing against them. He's the only one that answered the call for a crusade. <laughs> Although the uh, Matthias Corvinus uh, was kind of standing there watching, and he he claims to be part of it. Did the Pope at the time put a call out for a new crusade? And um, uh, yeah, Vlad Dracul is the only one that responded, basically. Yep, 
That's exactly right. Wow. Uh, and uh, and uh, Matthias Corvinus uh, is the only other one to claim to have responded. He really didn't do much. Uh, and apparently Stephen the Great, uh, the king of Moldavia, is furious with Vlad for teaming up with Corvinus. Uh, so, uh, which is kind of weird. Uh, and you sort of think he'd gotten over it by now, but uh, <laughs> right. and he did. And uh, so, so anyway, what, what you had was this huge Turkish army come up, and they just smacked Romania with everything they had. But what what Vlad did was he played. He did the scorched earth policy. He moved all the people off, and, and you know he he destroyed the fields. Uh, he killed or ran off the animals into uh, the forests, and the people. You know, they, I mean, they, they they hid with them sometimes, but sometimes they lost what they had, poisoned the wells, everything. It was one of the hottest summers in, for many years, and they they brought uh, warriors from Africa who were complaining about the thirst. <laughs> That's how bad it was. But yeah, yeah. And they they couldn't they couldn't get anything to eat. They couldn't find anything to drink. They they, they would find uh, stragglers. They would they would kill them or impale. They would impale them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, it was just terrible what he did to them. And uh, it's just like one bad thing after the next. And they they're just slogging along through Romania. By the time they get to Tirgoviste, they're they're almost completely demoralized. In fact, uh, Vlad attacks with trying to kill uh, Fatih Sultan Mehmet the uh, second. Kill him uh, personally. He he's really trying to kill him because he knows that would demoralize them forever. They would never come back because all they're seeing when they're there is, is misery. And they're not even seeing people, you know. He he cleared out his prisons and uh, gave them a, uh, incentives to kill stragglers. He uh, he even he even gave uh, bounties to uh, people who had uh, things like leprosy and uh, all kinds of other illnesses mm-hmm. to dress up like Turks and mingle among the Turks and pass oh, these oh, onto them. Oh yeah. Wow. So he, I mean, he's he's really thinking outside the box. I mean, he's he's like, you want hell, you got it, and he gave it to him. Biological warfare, Cliff. Oh yeah, just like uh, just like some of the other things that we've seen. You know, it's like, did they think of those things? Yeah, they did. Mm. They did. They they catapult bodies into the cities. You know that they're besieging. Yeah. Sure. They didn't know maybe what caused the disease, but they knew it caused they caused the problem. It's like, huh, dead bodies? Oh, that works. Well, that stinks. And, uh, yeah, that makes them sick. <laughs> yeah. So let's throw that in, you know. Hey, this guy died of a terrible disease. You think that might be a real good thing to throw at him? Yeah, do it. <laughs> so, yeah, they, uh, they, 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 you know, I mean, they weren't entirely stupid. Hmm. He had a real surprise waiting for him when they got to Tirgovishta. That's, that's when they saw the forest of uh, the impaled. Right. And right. and when when Mehmet saw that, he says, "How can you fight an enemy such as this?" Mm-hmm. And he turned around and retreated. Right. And the whole way out, all the way down to to the border, they harassed them. 
and uh, picked off the stragglers and stuff. And that that was one demoralized army. And when they got down to uh, Edirne, they came in at night so nobody could see them and how 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 depressed they were by by the events that had gone right. on. Right. And uh, the next day they celebrated their glorious victory over Vlad. <laughs> oh boy! Mm-hmm. They, they even maintained the they even maintained the fiction while they're in Constantinople. See that, like I say, Fatih Sultan Mehmet the second was a psycho. Yes, he was a true psychopath. Yeah, and there's no doubt about it. Now his minion Radu, he left him behind uh, after he after he turned around and went. And Radu uh, was making promises to the Germans that uh, he would uh, give them all the concessions they wanted. So they were on board. And he he made promises to uh, really just about everybody. And the the old boyars were tired of of Dracula trying to destroy them. So they they were there really quickly. And then the peasants, little by little just because they were tired of war. Uh, so even as he was in victory, his army was was abandoning him, and Radu ended up taking over uh, the country. So uh, once again, uh, Dracula proved that he could become invisible very, very well and disappeared back up in the mountains. And when he... When he became visible again <laughs> in the Borgo Pass, uh, he appeared to uh, uh, Matthias Corvinus, and they they were trying to negotiate something. Mm-hmm. Well, Vlad didn't have a whole lot to offer at the time because he uh, he he'd been deposed, and uh, and now what what could you do? You know, I mean, you you, you got nothing. You've got nothing, you know. What have you done for me lately, baby? Right. Vlad <laughs> didn't have a whole lot of choice, uh, and really, Matthias Corvinus didn't either. Because, but when it became clear that the bankers of uh, the Germans were not going to support Vlad, they were going to support Radu. Uh, Corvinus put him under arrest and took him back with him to to Hungary. He, he was in and out of prison, but he was also uh, sometimes a uh, very useful uh, uh, person to consult. I mean, he was very, uh, very apt with uh, with fighting. I mean, he was a he was one of the great soldiers. and learned from one of the great soldiers. So, so he was a useful uh, uh, prisoner, and he was in uh, Budapest and uh, prison there, and then uh, he was moved around a little bit. And uh, they let him out eventually, and uh, he, he he remarried. He, he married into the Zalaji family, but Radu was uh, actually becoming a big problem, uh, and uh, and they really kind of had to deal with him. Radu, the most handsome man in the world. That's right. The the really good looking guy. Uh, <laughs> He he he, uh, he was just a little bit too pro uh, Turk. So Dracula, really, you think about it, you know, he was kind of an ace in the hole. 
you know, when when he when he arrested uh, Dracula, he he didn't really particularly want to, mm -hmm. but he he didn't have a whole lot of choice. And uh, what else was he going to do with him? Was he going to give him to the Turks? Mm. Oh, that'd be a bad move. I mean, they'd just kill him. <laughs> so so it was better to have have him and and Han. And you know, if you needed to use one of the Dunesti, you could always grab one of them. You know, and take them and put them up to it. Uh, they they were pretty good at that. And uh, so at any rate, uh, they did get rid of Radu, and uh, the one that they put in place uh, was uh, another uh, Turkish candidate, Prince Basarab the Elder. Uh, this is that Basarab uh, uh, Leota or whatever it is. And he, uh, he of course, was the Turkish choice. And uh, so the, the uh, you know, you had the Mr. Bathory, Stephen Bathory, who's uh, aunt, has, uh, descended. Uh, Elizabeth Bathory would be one of the best-known female mass murderers uh, for the ghoulish habit of bleeding women for her beauty cream. That connection is just way too weird. <laughs> it's, what a gal. What a gal. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and she was actually pretty, but uh, that really does take away from it all. So anyway, uh, Stephen Bathory backed, uh, back, backed him, and they put Vlad Tepish on the throne. And uh, that was uh, really kind of his last, uh, kind of his last stand there. And uh, so... Uh, he had very little time. He, did, he didn't stay on the throne very long, and the uh, Turks came back after him again with the Basarab to, to overthrow him. And uh, so the boyars, well, they, they didn't put up with him either. They liked Basarab better, so they, they rebelled. And even the peasants uh, uh, abandoned him at this point. So he really didn't... Uh, he didn't do a very good job his last time up. But like I say, he's the original comeback kid. He he makes Clinton look uh, <laughs> look like a rookie. <laughs> and, and look at what he fights against. I mean, he's he's fighting in a, a much more hostile environment than Clinton ever had to deal with. Mm. Uh, and, and yeah, there's the controversy as to how he died. Uh, I was going to ask you that, Cliff. What's your opinion? I I, I know there's a few. It, there's more than one version of Vlad's death, so what do you think? What do I think? Is it is, well, it, is that right know. to say I, that, Cliff? Is that right to say that there's more than one version account of his death? Yeah, there there, there is. Uh, uh, there's, uh, there's a couple of them. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I, I'm going to guess that he was killed in battle. Right. Uh, there was a lot of question about where he was buried. And and that uh, that I think would be the best way to answer that is that you know who had the body well mm, yeah as we sp spoke earlier you said the head now I I, right. I thought I thought um, the the Turks ended up with the head and you know it was in a uh, box of honey but um, maybe the head was found in Italy or. The recent attempt to find his his body the body is tall. Mm -hmm. And that uh, the, the Turks uh, didn't get the right body. Right now, I I haven't seen 
any of the um, uh, results of any of the tests that they've done on this. But but the thing is, is that uh, Dracula's daughter, or one of his daughters, uh, married into uh, the Italian nobility. And that supposedly she got the body and had it buried in Rome. Now, that's entirely possible, especially if there were, were uh, some question about where he was buried. And that's why I, I kind of tend to think that maybe that maybe he was uh, killed in battle and that uh, un, under the cover of battle that maybe they, they hustled the body off the field and... Uh, and had it buried someplace temporarily before they gave it over to the daughter. Now, there was a tomb, uh, and uh, that was in, uh, hang on a second, uh, Snagov, near uh, near Budapest. Now, I didn't get over there. Uh, I, I probably went past it because we had to go over the, uh, the Danube to uh, get over there. But uh, Snagov is a... Is a Places and it's kind of a, a, a Vlad shrine in, in Romania. The old, uh, the, I think it was a palace there. But the main thing was the church, and that church was a, a church that he invested a lot of money in. Uh, one of the things that uh, Dracula was very good about was donating money to churches, and and I think that he probably thought that was a way of uh, atoning for his sins. Right. Right. And that that that's been the case with a lot of people, rich and powerful. You know that they would use their money to, you know, kind of use their conscience after the fact. Right. And uh, he was no different. Uh, and Snagov was the recipient of a lot of this. Uh, so so there's a there's a huge uh, uh, carving of uh, Vlad there that. Uh, it's it's kind of a shrine. Now now I I, I think I, I lost my pictures of uh, when I was in oh. Romania. Oh no. Yeah, and uh, well, I overloaded my card and I couldn't uh, I couldn't load them onto my computer. Yeah. Yeah, I'm oh, afraid. Shame, so. man. Shame. And uh, I had I had pictures of uh, uh, some very uh, cool. Uh, uh, panels from uh, from one of Vlad's uh, palaces in uh, Bucharest, mm-hmm. and, and and that's uh, that's that's the only place I really got to go. There's a uh, a bust of him at that palace, and uh, and, and I, I had uh, Juan take uh, my picture underneath of him, <laughs> but I, I don't I don't think I have it unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but I do plan to go there again. Sure. I, hey, mate, um, mm-hmm. do you want to go to bed and we want to pick this up another time? Because you're sounding tired. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm finally winding down. Mm. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, um, Cliff, yeah. we, can't, we can't do a show on the Vlad Tepesh. Is that the right pronunciation? Tepesh. 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 Vlad. Tepesh. Vlad Tepesh. Right, so we can't do a show on Vlad without at least discussing um, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. So, what is the right. what is the background of that? Like, what what was you know? 
can we strip away myth reality? Well, we've talked about the reality. So what's the myth? What's right. the story? What's the you know? Well, well, the myth uh, the myth started right with the the actual historical uh, events. Uh, uh, the the Germans, uh, especially the ones that were <laughs> related to the uh, the impaled uh, merchants, uh, would. Uh, just take the stories directly to the Holy Roman Emperor, trying to uh, trying to affect policy towards Vlad. Uh, so there there was that right away. In fact, uh, uh, Radu would uh, would play on a lot of this, and uh, that that was how he uh, managed to get uh, the support that uh, to his side that just. Uh, caused the support behind Vlad to wither away. Uh, and, and so what, what you have with Dracula is the fact that he had very quickly made this reputation as, as a brutal psychopath, and, and, and he really did deserve it. I mean, his, uh, his murders were um, frightening. So that, that, that said, I mean, uh, and, and, and that aspect of his character can't be un, underemphasized. I mean, we can, we can point to a lot of good things about the guy. Uh, we can point to a lot of heroism on his part. But the, the fact is, is that the people of, uh, of Wallachia were afraid. And they were afraid and they were tired. And so, so it wasn't too hard for Radu to take take a control of the situation. And say, hey, I promise peace. I promise peace, and I promise I won't impale you. We'll go back to the old ways, and the, the land grants given to the uh, peasants are now revoked. And uh, I will uh, I will do these great deals for the uh, for the Siebenbergen, uh, the Germans, and I, and I will promise you this. And he promised everything, and he, and he delivered. Uh, see, that was the thing. He was in a position where he could deliver because he had the Turkish sultan behind him and that he had uh, the Germans, at least, uh, because the Holy Roman Emperor was more worried about, uh, about heretics, uh, uh, you know, basically proto-Protestants in the middle of a, uh, in the middle of the home of the Roman Empire than they were about Turks uh, taking over uh, the Balkans. Which later they would probably come to regret, as we discussed, when... Uh... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the Habsburgs would learn to uh, regret some of their decisions that they made there earlier. Uh, so would Venice. Uh, yeah. Venice would be on the edge yeah. of it also. Yeah. And uh, that would be a fact, yes. Cliff, do you know much about yeah. Bram Stoker himself? Was he... Um... A member of the Stoker. Golden Dawn. Yes, he was. Uh, he, he was. Uh, he was an occult enthusiast. Mm -hmm. uh, he was probably not as serious as some of the others. I mean, he, his uh, his interests were more uh, intellectual. Uh, whereas, you know, you got somebody like Crowley who was just uh, obsessed with uh, you know unseen powers and forces. Now, Stoker was Irish, wasn't he? And um, yeah, it was. So, how did he get onto this story about um, Vlad? Do we know? Like, how did he choose him? And you know, this idea of you know the undead and well, one of the things that was uh, really gripping uh, all of Europe was uh, nationalism. But but one of the ex ex 
expressions of nationalism was uh, came from collecting uh, uh, different uh, cultural items like uh, uh, recipes and uh, uh, details about clothing styles and stuff over the years and uh, the compilation of uh, folklore. Uh, was a really seriously important part of that. So you had the Brothers Grimm in Germany who were doing it. Uh, you had the guy, I can't think of his name, but the guy that wrote Cinderella was a, was a Frenchman who was doing the same. Right. And, and uh, I can't think of his name now, but he was a brilliant writer. Uh, and, and he collected all these wonderful stories, you know, and just like the Brothers Grimm did, you know, the, the knock open, uh, oh, what was the other one's name? Wilhelm. And the two of them were just, just brilliant uh, linguists. They, they went, went all over Germany and, uh, and, and found all these stories. That, you know, it was like they would find different versions of the same story in different places and, They'd examine how it was different, how it was the same, and you know they'd make speculations about where it really came from, stuff like that. You know, so so you had a lot of that going on uh, all over all over the world. You know, the, but particularly in Europe, hey, even the Turkey was doing that. They were they were collecting their stories like on Argenicon at that time. And then they, they still examine those. Uh, Turkish uh, nationalism is a, is a huge thing, uh, e- even now. Uh, in fact, people today, you know, in the U.S., and Australia, and, you know, well, well, U.K., I mean, people would be so surprised at the nationalism. We, we, don't, we don't do that in, in, you know, the English-speaking countries. We kind of play that down. That's right. That's right. Our civic, our pride of our country, and our pride of our, of our uh, ethnicity and stuff. But uh, in, in some but, areas in uh, Australia now, to wave the flag, now you're called a bogan, and I'll let people look that up in the in Google. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's been people who've gotten in trouble over here for it, but I, I think that's going to change. I, I, I honestly do. Yes, exactly. So. Are you saying that um, uh, Stoker was collecting um, folk tales from Eastern Europe? Sure, sure, and I, I think uh, I think he started with the uh, folk tales from uh, from Ireland. Actually. Right, right, right. But uh, but yeah, he he found this this interesting historical character uh, that uh, that there was a lot of material on, and that he came into contact with some books that. Uh, I, I have actually read uh, the, when I went to uh, Ireland. Um, I, I stayed there for one day, and I picked up a book over there, and it was the first uh, book written on uh, werewolves. Right, right. But it it goes into other uh, folkloric uh, e- e- creatures and entities that. Uh, that bore a certain amount of resemblance, and one of them is uh, the vampire. <laughs> yes, I think he read the same book, <laughs> and uh, and he did have all this information. I I, uh, I like I say I bought it when I was in I was in Ireland, and uh, and it, it's a, it's a reprint of a very old book, and uh, a very good one too. 
Uh, in fact, he was a pastor, if I'm not mistaken. You, know, you see, you know, that's one of the things. All these different uh, scientists and anthropologists mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, these guys were all uh, churchmen, right? And 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 you know, uh, when we talked about uh, the atheism, uh, they they had a very hard time taking that away from them and giving it to the uh, professors. See that that's how they. That's how they managed to uh, put a uh, atheistic spin on everything. Yeah, yeah, this is the guy. He wrote on with Christian soldiers. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Isn't that amazing, huh? Yeah, well, he was an Anglican uh, priest, uh, mm-hmm. an antiquarian. Mm-hmm. His name was, uh, okay, so the guy's name was uh, Reverend Sabine Baring Gould, and, and he... Uh, he wrote a very good uh, book on the uh, folklore behind behind the werewolf, and and he he slid over and he did a whole bunch on the vampire. Right. And and one of the things that he did was he collected a lot of the uh, a lot of the legends uh, that were from you know from like southern Poland, parts of Germany. Uh, Austria, the, the Czechoslovakia, and uh, Hungary, and Romania, and on down through the Balkans and Serbia, and uh, it even talked about some of the things that the Turks had, and uh, just really, uh, really a, a, a magnificent book. Not very big, but just filled with information on uh, lycanthropy. And uh, vampirism. I mean, he he wrote on both of these subjects. So you've got a copy of this book somewhere? Yeah, I I, I bought it in uh, in Ireland, and I brought it. I took it back with me when I went back to Turkey, and I read it over there. And yeah, and it's among my things that I I brought home. Uh, but I, I I can't open the box yet. It, yeah, it, he also wrote on Chris, onward Christian soldiers. That's amazing. That is amazing, and uh, he—he's uh, he, just a really remarkable fellow that uh, had a lot of uh, a lot of different uh, abilities and things. And he—he he folk songs, folk stories. I mean, he—he he did it all. And uh, are you thinking that um, Stoker read him? Yeah, I'm thinking he did, and it probably got him looking a little deeper into the subject. Uh, he probably got his hands on some uh, some things about uh, about Balkan uh, folklore and uh, things of that sort. Did, did Stoker ever go over there? Did he ever go to? Um... No, he never went there. Well, but what he, were the... he, he did very good research. I was going to say, how did he get he... the descriptions of the? Because um, you've told me before about um, how close he got the, the descriptions of the mountains and the passes. How did he do that? Sure, he looked at pictures. Right. He looked at pictures. He talked to people that had been there. Right. He was he was a pretty smart guy, and he was a good he was a good researcher, and mm-hmm. and he he did very good research, and it, it, he was he was very fortunate because one of the biggest uh, the most top, pop, popular type of book at that time was really the travel guide, and there were a lot of people that were going through the Balkans because it was kind of a place of mystery, you know, that it's European, it, it's Christian, but you know, it's been overrun for all these years by the Turks. Right. And so, so while as the Turks were kind of 
fading slowly through the whole area there. You know, there were people going there checking it out. And, uh, you know, it's just you had a lot of these really amazing people and amazing things that were happening at the time. And the stuff that was coming out, it was just really interesting. Nobody had heard anything like that before. Right. And so um, Stoker, this is um, his, his Dracula comes out book dracula comes out in 1897 so that's right. this era era that you're talking about isn't it oh yeah um, absolutely travel they're interested in travel they're interested in you know uh egypt and and all sorts sure. of places and the mysterious east and i suppose this all comes out in this this time sure sure well, well the, the Ottoman empire was a huge melting pot one of the things you find is you find uh, things like uh Arab-style meat being done in Romania. Uh, one of the things that I... When I went to Romania, uh, I, I went to a place called Shawarmania, and it's Shawarma. And, and right. Shawarma is, uh, is meat that's cooked like the gyro. And uh, also, like in, in Turkey, they call it dinar. And... Uh, and the kebab is a huge loaf of meat, you know, they cut downward to cut it off, and it spins from an upward position. And uh, the Arabs call that sharama. Well, so the Romanians. <laughs> right. And and yeah. I, I had pork sharama when I went there, which was just marvelous. Do you realize how often we end up talking about food whenever we have a discussion, Cliff? Oh, I, I'm always talking about food. <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> but, but you do you have you have this huge melting pot, you know, yeah. and that's that's yeah. really what any empire really does is they they try to try to pour everything into everywhere else, right? Mm -hmm. And that's part of what they do when they colonize. And so you have hummus, you know, that served uh, mm. in in southern Europe too. You know, it, it's not like the chickpeas aren't there, yeah. you know, but uh, but but this is that's very Arabic, you know. It, it's really interesting that the, the, this mixture of things that happens because of that. Um, when, when you get down here, I'll introduce you to Aussie cuisine, mate. Oh yeah, yeah, the meat pie. Oh yeah, now that, 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 that I'm up for that. <laughs> uh, my my friend Paul, he, he's from Manchester. He he made me a nice uh, nice British meat pie, and it it was it was good. It was really good. There's nothing I'm, like. I'm sure a, what you guys are doing. I was going to say, yeah, mate, the Aussie style. Aussie style is a is a maggot bag that you can call them a maggot bag or a meat pie, but a ma <laughs> a maggot bag from the local servo, mate, with a bit of bit of dead horse tomato sauce on it. That that's Aussie cuisine. Uh, oh, that sounds good to me. <laughs> sounds good to me. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's like, you know, whenever you go to another place, you have to try some of what they have, you know. Well, and, we talked uh, about it earlier, didn't we? Um, you, yeah. You follow the locals, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> if you want to find out where the good food is, but um Yeah, where anyway. they go and where they eat. Sure. Exactly. Sure, absolutely. Stoker was a very fine writer. He he did great research and and he had access to the books. I mean, Britain Britain has always been a good place for buying books and uh, and finding them. And 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 he he 
he has good instincts. You know, it was like uh, he, he, what he put together uh, was so new and different to, that he actually tapped into a lot of different um, archetypal uh, images that uh, we easily find from one culture to another. Uh, the idea of the undead and the uh, the, the creature that that lives off of other uh, living creatures as a uh, predator, uh, all these kinds of things. He had enough historical realism and uh, all that to really uh, kind of pull together uh, something that people could really bite into it, and they would find, hey. There's truth in the, what he's saying, you know. They're talking about the different types of foods and stuff, uh, and and those those dishes exist. And know, locations they, too, Cliff. Is yeah, the like locations are real. Uh, yeah. Borgo Pass, uh, yeah. Poinara uh, Castle, which is a Castle Dracula. You've got uh, you got the uh, Orient Express. You know, they they, t- they took the express down to. Uh, mm. Actually, they didn't really take the Orient Express. They took the train to uh, Budapest, and then from there they had to take uh, they had to take other means. And uh, when they talk about the gypsies, uh, there there was a definite relationship between Dracula and the gypsies. Uh, the gypsies were uh, he was very harsh on them, but he was also very uh, forgiving of certain crimes, and he would enlist them into his. Uh, his uh, his entourage, you know, his per- personal guard was about half gypsy. That's right, because I watched the the movie, you know, the um, the movie sure. just last night, um, the nineteen ninety two version, and the, exactly. the gypsies do feature in that one. Yes. Oh, absolutely, and and, and the thing is, is that the not only did Stoker do, do such good research, but the people that did the nineteen ninety two version did also. And they went back and they they not only looked at Stoker's book, but they also looked at the fashions of the time in uh, in London, looking at the fashions of the time in Romania, and then they also looked at the historical Dracula, and they 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 took certain elements of his character yeah. and added them into the story, and and it, it was really an interesting. Uh, mix of things that they did with that. I, I really like that version. I, you know, the Lugosi stuff, you know, it's just fantastic because, you know, it's, it's, it's the original. And, and, the, and of course, you had earlier ones even uh, like uh, Count Orloff, Nosferatu. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and that, that's another one. And Orloff is uh, actually the name is supposed to uh, echo Orlok, which is uh, a word... Uh, from Serbia that, that talks about the blood-drinking uh, undead creature that, that comes in from the shadow world. There, there are all these echoes, you know, coming off of all this, you know, that they go into the the uh, vampire, vampire uh, mystique and all this. Uh, and, yeah, I find all that really interesting. You know, I mean, when I'm, a, you know, I was this young punk, uh, neo, you know, proto-goth, you know, <laughs> wearing all black and stuff <laughs> back when I was doing it in the seventies, you know, I mean, I was, I was fascinated by, by all this just as they are today. 
but but you know the blood drinking and all that. I I just I I never <laughs> I never thought there'd be organized groups of people doing it. You know, but then they're trying to become these undead creatures, but they're not. They need to wake up and face a little bit of reality. They're smoking something a little bit too strong here. <laughs> and so. Uh, well, well, yeah, it goes back to the, the kids killing the cat, you know. I mean, okay, it's time to time to get real, kids. Uh, <laughs> we've had enough fun for a week, right? Pack, pack that up. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the thing. You, you know, you you really do get into this this uh, this place where people are taking uh, something something very interesting, but they're really taking it far too seriously, and. Uh, uh, I'm afraid uh, when when we look at this type of uh, uh, occult uh, gameplay, that that really does tap into something both powerful and dangerous. They're they're taking uh, uh, what little they have in books, and 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 which is mostly a bunch of mumbo jumbo. And they're they're taking their fantasies and they're grafting it onto there. That's when it starts getting really dangerous. It's like you know that these kids that are uh, you know sit around smoking dope, listening to a little bit too much. Uh, oh, what's their name? Uh, King Diamond and, uh, and and coming up with all these bizarre ideas, and they start killing the cat. You know, I mean that that, that really is seriously bad. You you will, you mentioned it in the last show too that we did, which is um, yeah. on a, on a different subject that. Most of the stuff they come up with is, well, you said they get stoned and they become inspired, and it's imaginary. It's fantasy. Oh yeah, mm. oh yeah, it's all fantasy. But it's it's the thing is, is that there the, there's also a uh, because they put a belief in it, they inject it with some power. Right, right. That's probably where it's more truly dangerous than it is anything. There's not a lot of real material for that. Right. You, you know what I'm saying? I, 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 I do, I, I do, I do. I, I, do. Yeah. I, I, I can't emphasize that enough because yeah. most of it's such nonsense. It, it was mostly to make money for, for very poor publishers. But when they start uh, putting their, their, projecting their ideas into it and to uh, start harming somebody or something, that, that's when it really gets, uh, gets to be a, a really big problem. Because somebody could get hurt. That's right. It, it's bad enough with animals. Now, now the the book that I used on this one uh, as my particular reference is a mm-hmm. uh, is a book. It's a, it's a little bit old now, uh, but it's a Dracula, Prince of Many Faces, His Life and Times. It's by uh, Radu Florescu and uh, Raymond T. McNally, and this is from uh, eighty nine. There has been a little bit more that they they've been able to add to it, but uh, but basically this is uh, the best book I've seen to uh, bring together not only uh, uh, his his real life, but also the mystique and the uh, the origin of the stories that uh, sure. were t- told that the, the the ones that Stoker got his hands on. And uh, and how that all plays together. It really, really is a, a good, uh, good resource as a historical one in in, in many ways, including cinematography. Uh, it, it's a very fine book, and uh, the the two researchers, uh, 
they've done they've done other works together, but it, that was I think their their masterpiece. Excellent. Uh, Florescu is a is a, uh, a writer in uh, uh, Romania, and uh, McNally is an American, I believe. But uh, the Florescu family, uh, you, you you see their names all over the place with all the streets in uh, in Bucharest, and okay. uh, it's uh, it's really pretty neat because we're, we're you know I, I went to, went to my friend Juan's place, and I see. Uh, you know, uh, Mat- Matthias Corvinus and uh, oh, wow. you know, yeah. Boulevard, and I see uh, uh, John Huna H- H- you know, right, right, which is John Hunyadi, you know, yeah. in his uh, yeah. in his Romanian spelling, and mm-hmm. uh, just all these really remarkable names from from that time period, and uh, and it's pretty neat, it really is, uh, and and going over there. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to going back and seeing my friend uh, uh, over there again. And uh, Well, I think uh, we might leave it there, Cliff. Um, yeah, I think you probably almost have to because cause otherwise uh, we, we, we get into some other things that uh, maybe we really don't have time to get into. And I want to do on other shows, to be honest. But, um well, Cliff, despite all our technical difficulties, mate, and, uh, you know, we had to record different sections at different times, um, I, I just want to say thanks for sticking with it, and thanks for your time, and, and God bless, mate. Okay. Hey, well, my pleasure. All right. So I think I'll play us out with the Transylvania twist. So uh, until next time, okay. take care. Okay. What is here it is. Here what is the Transylvania twist. All right, let's hear it. www.lightflintradio.com If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com 